Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, we'll be talking moustaches to raise awareness and funds for men's health. Movember is here. We'll meet the nurse who's on a mission to redefine healthcare and self care and let food be your first pharmacy. I'll be hearing from nutritionist Rachel Graham. So, what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? It was good, feeling good. I've had a good couple of weeks at half to say. And I want to say something on the show this week about women. I am very conscious on the show that often there is a lean towards women's health. Breast cancer, the menopause have all come up on the show over the last little while. And while these are not exclusively female issues, they affect everyone, regardless of how you identify. I always try to make sure I balance out the show as much as I can. Health and well-being for everyone. And people will often ask me, How do you find guests for the show week after week? And I do have a fabulous producer, Aoife Breen, and often we'll go with things that are maybe in the news or PR outlets and publishers will contact us with a guest suggestion. But often it'll be something that I see online and people often contact me on my social media. And I have to say it's mostly women. I'm a bit blown away by women in the wellness space at the moment. There are a lot of women who are standing in their power and really shouting about what they are doing. And I'm so here for it. There's a huge amount of networking support and mentoring going on between women. Men too. Now, don't get me wrong. I had a back and forth with a male listener recently. And as I told him, I welcome all feedback to the email address. And he was questioning my comment a while back about women supporting women. And I said to him, I think everybody should support everybody whose intentions are good, regardless of gender. And of course, we're stepping away from stereotyping labels. But I'm telling you now, I feel a force from women in business at the moment. And I was in Cork recently for the opening of Dr. Fiona Barry's new clinic. She is an absolute gem who'll be coming on the show next week to talk about her Chinese medicine clinic and Even at that, there were women networking and supporting and and setting up things to support women. And there's just a real energy out there. Laura Dowling, the fabulous pharmacist, has announced she's heading on a Viva La Vulva tour next year. All the different people. There's a great energy and we just need it right now amid the more murky happenings across the globe. And I just felt it was worth a mention There are incredible men in the wellness space doing amazing things too. I do not deny that at all. But as I reflected on the balance of gender on this show recently, I really felt the girls were worth a mention. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Right, that said, will we get into a male topic? Movember is an annual event involving the growing of moustaches during the month of November to raise awareness of men's health issues such as prostate cancer, testicular cancer and men's suicide. And I'm joined in studio now by a man and a woman, Movember Ambassador Michael Cowman and Movember Irish Country Manager Sarah Wallet. Well, you're both very welcome. Michael, can I start with you then and your story? You men being men were jostling about with a friend of yours and something hurt more than it should have. Yeah, I was I was actually it was in when I was in college, I was only about twenty. Um and we were in a nightclub in Galway. Uh and yeah, got jostled, as you say. Um in, uh, you know, in a particular area. And yeah, it hurt a lot more than it should have. Um, ended up having to go home from the nightclub that, that night. 
um, and then ha- ended up having to go to the doctor to uh, basically get my testicles examined as one of them was, you know, swollen and uh, kind of went from that point onwards that, you know, got the testicle examined, got it then removed, um, as the case was, and then ended up having to do uh, chemotherapy as a result of all that, you know. So it, I guess the friend who uh, hit me or gave me a slap did me a favour in the in the long run of things, really. Wow. Are you still friends with this guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, he lives in France. We haven't spoken for a while, but I, yeah, I would I would definitely have a drink with him. At the time, I was obviously quite annoyed. Um, but in hindsight and, you know, on mature reflection, yeah, he, did, he definitely did me a favour. Yeah, a bit of a, a lifesaver there. And would you have been the type of guy who would have gone for regular checkups or, you know, had a, a regular relationship with your GP? Yeah, no, not I wouldn't. Not really. Not at all. I mean, I was 20. Had a bit of an invincibility complex, I would say. Mm. This is, I'm, I'm 33 now, so this is kind of 12, 13 years ago. So even the space, the kind of space around talking about these things was different then. Um, so certainly no. And I'd never had anything wrong with me. I Like I tore ligaments in my knee a couple of times, you know, that was a very sports related in- injury. So this was something very, very different. Um, and so the whole thing was very foreign to me. Didn't know anybody who'd kind of gone through this kind of process. And even then when I uh, was in the hospital, when I was getting the chemotherapy eventually, I was just surrounded by older guys who were, you know, and it was a lot of prostate cancer actually, but like 60s, uh, 70s, that kind of thing. So I was there as a 20 year old, very much the the odd one out, I suppose. And what about now in your 30s? Does this come up in conversation more? Because I, I feel like, you know, I keep kind of pitting the genders against each other and I really don't mean to. I just think we should all get along no matter how you identify. But we seem to talk a lot more about breast cancer than we do about testicular cancer and prostate cancer. And I know Movember is going a long way to push that awareness front and centre. Um but does it come up in conversation with men, like on a golf course, I mean, around a pint? A, a little bit. Um, I would say even my own experiences, I probably didn't talk about it for a long time after it happened. And I, I, I'd hesitate to say it was shame, but it was just something I didn't really want to talk about. And I've only really started to engage with Movember in the last kind of three, four years. Um, and so before that, I really was reluctant to talk about it. So, yeah, no, I, I guess it's not really the kind of thing that tends to come up because... Irish men, we're not we're not great at sharing in many cases. We've definitely gotten better. And like you say, in my 30s, and I think that the world has moved on a little bit and we've kind of become more conscious of being able to talk about these things. I think we have gotten a lot better. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that comes up over a, a casual point. But uh, maybe it should be. Yeah, I mean, I'd often say to my husband, you know, how's your friend who is going through that really messy separation? Um, you know, how's he doing? And he's like, don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Didn't ask you, him. You were with him for three hours last night. And this... This frequently happens to me. It's like you were with him for three hours last night. How's his, how's his baby? How's his wife? I haven't a clue, you know. He was, he was good though, you know. We just talked about the match. That was, that was about the size of things. Yeah. Did you have any sort of hesitation when November contacted you about becoming an ambassador? Not really. It's a big jump from yeah. just talking about sports to talking about yourself. Uh, look, I, I'm, it's my favourite topic. Uh, but <laughs> no, ser- seriously, I, um, no, I, was, I think it's really important. And I think for me, I think I would have benefited from somebody being able to, to, to being able to talk to somebody about it. So to kind of stand out, tell my story and uh, be able to ha- be a touch point for people to reach out to if they have any issues. And it has happened over the years. People have reached out and said, oh, listen, I've gone through this or my cousin's going through this or whatever. Um, so I found it's been really beneficial. And personally, I just I just think it's an important thing to do. And anything I can kind of do to uh, to give back a little bit, because you know, I, I obviously went through it at quite a young age. Uh, 
that yeah, I'm really happy to do that. So uh, it was a it's kind of a privilege, I would say. And can I ask you then a personal question? I don't know if you can speak on behalf of all men, <laughs> but why are men so sensitive about that region and that area that you know it can't be touched, it can't be you know looked at in a medical sense in case something goes wrong with it? Yeah, uh, and like. Again, I had my own kind of personal issues with this was we're just it, it's just something we don't really talk about, isn't it? You know, it's, it, we're taught about from a young age that it's not polite to kind of talk about it. It's not something we, we would tend to be bringing up in conversation. I mean, even when I went into the surgeon and he said to me, look, we're going to we're going to have to remove your testicle. And I said, OK, that's, you know, fair enough. And uh, he said, and at some point down the road, we'll we'll put a, a prosthesis back in. I said, no, no, no. I said, you'll put one in today. And I'm like, I'm not a very forceful person in general in life. And it was one of the only times in my life I was like, no, I don't want to be asymmetric. You know, I don't want to not have, have both. Um, and he, went, he just laughed. He went, OK, yeah, no, fair enough. We'll do, we can do it today. Um, but it was just, you know, it was one of those things. I think as a man, you kind of want to feel like it's almost like you're feeling whole, you know. And I think that, that was certainly an issue that I came across with, uh, uh, like when it happened to me. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was even listening to... Um an interview with Dawn French and she was talking about her infertility struggles with Lenny Henry. And she said in the clinic, the doctor said almost 80% of the cases it is to do with the sperm. And yet the woman seems to carry the burden of it all. Now, whether that's to do with how women view it or society or loads of things outside of our control, but it's like, don't mention the tackle. Don't (laughs) dare suggest it could be the tackle because that will just destroy a man. So I suppose... There may be something in that. Yeah. No, I think, look, there's historical reasons for that and whatever, I guess, as well. Um, but look, the more we can talk about it, the more we can be open about these things, the more we can talk about, you know, checking yourself um, and and uh, all that kind of thing, I think the better the better things are going to get. Brilliant. I want to bring in uh, Sarah Wallet. Sarah, you are the Irish country manager for Movember and it's gone beyond the cancer, the prostate cancer and testicular cancer and also into suicide. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So our view really is that we talk about the the kind of the health, all health of a men. So it's not really about just um, the cancer side of things. We've really doubled down on mental health and suicide prevention and everything we do now. So since 2006, it's been a real part of our impact strategy. Um, and so what we look at is the idea of a holistic healthcare approach that is um, that is specific to men in some ways, but actually benefits women and families and society as a whole. If we think about a healthy man, there's not just the benefits to men, it's the benefits to everyone. And that includes all parts of a men's health. So it's really important to us that we focus on all of those aspects. And how important is this campaign? It's incredibly important. So um, we're in our 20th year of being of having Movember around the world. We're in 19 countries around the world. Um, in Ireland, we've been here since 2008. Um, and we're also, we are, out of those 19 countries, Irish people are the most generous. So really, um, our Mo's raise more money on average per person than anybody else in the world. So we contribute enormously to what our mission is. Um, and we, we're doing great stuff here in Ireland as well. So we work with um, Hugs at Home, for example, as a program that we fund, which is training the families of first responders in kind of basic um, uh, mental health first aid. So they can actually have those tough conversations with their family, with that first responder at home because that's the first point of call typically, but they felt very unable to support them in the right way. So we're funding things like that as a good example of what we do here. Right, that's amazing. And, you know, when you hear Michael talk and Michael, I don't mean to speak about you like you're not here, you're still here. 
that there isn't that much openness. There isn't much of how are you feeling and how are you doing? Whereas like I remember picking up a friend recently to go somewhere and like her foot wasn't even in the footwell and the passenger door closed before I was like fully unleashing my whole emotions upon her and her back to me then once we got going. Uh, how are we helping in, in that area? So we do lots of work around the idea that like no, November and November as a month, um, it's really an opportunity to have those types of conversations. So if you do anything else, if you don't sign up to do November or you don't donate, it's still an opportunity to have those conversations to say like, how are you doing? And actually just checking in with people with it, it between a guy to a guy. Um, we really encourage the idea that it's okay to say you're not okay. And we facilitate those conversations, whether that's at work. So we do lots of workplace kind of health talks and lots of... Um, um, ways of supporting your colleagues or your friends or in your sports club, all of those things. So we have programs that we run in all of these environments to kind of teach people that there are tools to be able to have those conversations. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be tough. It can be really simple, but it's really about giving the opportunity to have that conversation with someone opening the door. And um, so we encourage that incredibly. Um, and we're doing a lot more work with a younger generation of people. So if you're kind of, you know, a 14-year-old boy, you want to really upskill that boy to be able to have those conversations earlier and easier when they're adults, um, teaching parents and, and people who are involved in young people's lives to be able to support them in a different way. So a lot of the work that we do goes into that aspect as well. Amazing. Now, I did hear, um, I was doing a, a mental health seminar yesterday and there was an expert there and she was saying that the age has changed. So where it used to be in the early 20s, it's now moved to to later in a man's life, which would suggest that the younger cohort are beginning to change. It's like that same cohort just got older without the skills. So I do think things are changing, you know, for all society. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. We still have the stats are really still quite compelling, though. So when you think, um, you know, we know that a boy born in 2020 will live typically kind of 3.7, 3.8 years less than a girl born in the same year. And there's a lot of factors that are involved in that. But when you think about in Ireland, um, suicide is the leading cause of death for men between 15 and 29 there's a lot of ways that we can start to do early interventions there to try and before it gets to crisis point, actually give young men the skills to be able to then avoid those crisis moments or at least deal with them in a different way. And the same thing when it comes to cancer and in, in testicular cancer, prostate cancer, you know, testicular cancer is the most diagnosed cancer for men between 18 and 39. So while it's it's a cancer that affects young men, it's highly treatable. And we want to give guys the chance to say like, you know, know how to check yourself, encourage your friends to check themselves. I know these are maybe slightly uncomfortable conversations, but they absolutely will help you in the long run. Um, and when it comes to prostate cancer, like the survivorship rates are are incredibly high now. I think it's about the quality of life after survivorship and about how we can support that. Um, and we do a lot of work on that research side. So for us, it's about, I think, trying to improve overall health of men. And that then, by default, improves the overall health of society. That's the way that we're looking at things. Yeah. And it's the power of shared experience, isn't it? You think you're going to burden someone, you think it's going to be uncomfortable, but chances are when you open that door, they say, oh God, me too. Or hang on, I know, you know, and that's the Irish in us. We're like, my cousin's brother, sister, everybody has a story to add to the mix. So don't be afraid to do it. Michael, how is life now 13 years later? Absolutely fine. It's like it didn't really have any effect on my quality of life or uh, or anything, anything even like from a fertility perspective. That was all kind of taken care of at the time. Um, so I would have gone and given uh, sperm donations, but then post that as part of the follow up. They do fertility tests and stuff on the on the um, on like 
the reproductive side of things. Um, and so they're able to give you a full report on how that's been affected because there is a potential that the chemo can affect the fertility. Um, but luckily enough, that, that hasn't uh, affected me. And people, because this is radio, won't be able to see that you're sporting quite the beard and the moustache. Yeah. But you say that's not cheating in November. That's not, it's, it's not just um, growing a mo. Uh, I mean, two year, two, three years ago, I actually shaved the, the beard and I came home and my girlfriend, oh, is that what you look like? So, you know, <laughs> I think my own mental health was severely affected that time. So I might maybe won't be doing that this year. So instead, <laughs> I'm going to run a, um, going to run some events Um and then I'm also going to do a dip every morning, ice bath dip every morning to kind of, uh, as a, as something to kind of call back to, you know, raise some money for the charity as well. Brilliant and show how manly you really are. Yeah, this, is, this is what it's all about really, isn't it, you know? Um, is there somewhere people can support you, your social media? Yeah, so um, I'm at the Cowman Show on, uh, on social media, on Instagram particularly. And so the tickets for the event will be going up in the next, uh, in the next few days as well on Eventbrite. So it should be, should be good crack. And Sarah, how can people support Movember? You can sign up at Movember.com. You can donate to people like Michael who are raising funds for us. We encourage you to take the chance in Movember to have those conversations. If you do nothing else, open up a conversation with someone. Um, but you don't have to be a man to do Movember. You can do all kinds of events, like Michael said. So you can you can move, you can, uh, you can grow a mo, you can do your own challenge. Um, there's lots of ways and all the information is on Movember.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Continued success to The Cowman Show. <laughs> Michael Cowman and Sarah Wallet. thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Robin Taff is a qualified nurse and in recent years has begun to change how she views healthcare and is on a mission to share the message of self-care to others. She joins me on the line now. Robin, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about you and your own health journey from nursing, as I mentioned, to to how you live now. So I originally wanted to study being a nurse when I had my own health struggles. As I was growing up, I have a hereditary heart condition. So it kind of sparked the interest in me to study more about healthcare. And a big part of my own journey was more lifestyle medicine as well as my Western medicine to what I was learning in college and I realized the huge role that self-care plays so like what we eat what we're drinking our movement our exercise our sleep and how it's very much a, a holistic approach that can really support us to have to live our healthiest life. And I think that word holistic is so important because that means taking it all together because often we pit health and wellness against each other and, you know, the medical world against the self-care world, that these are, you know, polar opposites where really they work in tandem. Absolutely. Like I wouldn't be where I am and so many people wouldn't be where they are without Western medicine, without medication, but also pairing that with all of the stuff that we do day to day to give us, I suppose, the best chance to be our healthiest. And tell me what happened five years ago when you found yourself burnt out. So I was working full time as a nurse. I was actually on permanent nights. So in a really stressful um, job, I was working in paediatric palliative care. So it was quite heavy in terms of stress. I wasn't getting much sleep. I didn't really have time to eat properly. And that contributed a lot to burnout. But then with my heart condition, I ended up being in heart failure. So I was going in. I generally have checkups quite regularly. And when I went in, my cardiologist said, look, it's actually gotten so bad that we are going to have to put in a pacemaker. You're in heart failure. 
and I suppose it was probably the the reality check that I needed. I just put my own health on the back burner for too long. And I think eventually if we don't look after ourselves, our body will just take a break and we won't have a choice about when it is because it just can't it can't do it anymore. Um so that was when I really woke up to self care and just that it was essential, that it wasn't an option anymore. And I started studying then. So I wanted to use my nursing but also see how I could bring in these other elements so we could kind of help patients with that as well. So I studied nutrition and then personal training and became a meditation teacher. And I actually got a job in a wonderful GP surgery. So we would start, if I saw patients and they were coming in for bloods or high blood pressure, we would discuss little things that they could do in terms of stress management or in terms of their food. So to try and bring it into Western medicine and have the conversations in that, I suppose, the five, ten minutes that you have with someone, but to try and make a little difference. So I suppose it, it definitely came from my own struggles, but it really helps my career now as well. And that's just a real indication that we are changing, particularly in GPs. My own GP is fantastic on, on lifestyle. Obviously, she's brilliant on the medical side of things, but then she'll often veer into into that side um, and has set up a fantastic women's clinic. So, you know, that is changing. So I always say, I only said it on the show last week, if you don't have a GP that you like, that you trust, that you feel you get a well-rounded treatment from, like, go again. Um, how did you cope, Robin, with the psychological side of what you were going through? Because you had this heart condition from your teenage years. Now, you, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd burnt out and you were told all manner of challenging things like you wouldn't be able to work properly. You might never become a mother if that was something that was important to you. There must have been a lot for you to take on mentally as well as, as, well as physically. Yeah, I have to say I found it really hard. Um, like initially I was diagnosed when I was 13. So I remember I was a competitive swimmer. My my whole family, we were so active. We were so into like movement and me and my, all my sisters swam. And I remember when I was diagnosed, I was told on that day that I would never swim again. <laughs> I remember I said, well, what can I do? And he told me that I could play chess. And that was kind of as active as I would get. And for a long time, I kind of took that as, okay, well, that's final and nothing will ever change. And I suppose then when I started studying um, more about it, I, I kind of understood the role that I would have in it. I have to say going to therapy was a huge part of helping me cope with all of these different things that were being thrown at me. And every time I went into my cardiologist, I tried to remind myself that, okay, I am also a statistic and while I will always take into consideration their advice and and what things might look like for me, that there's always a small chance that things can change and things can get better. And that really helped me kind of with my mindset in that I didn't feel like everything was as final. Um, But I have to say the, the mental health part of it, I really struggled with and therapy was a big a big tool for me and little things of self-care in terms of looking after my emotions. Like I started doing some meditation to help me with feeling anxious or constant worries about what was going to happen and just little things like that at home that would help me navigate it. But I think it is also, it's, it's a huge part of health struggles that are not spoken about. It's the mental effects that it can have on us and a diagnosis or changes to our lives and how that can make us feel. 
Yeah, um, we, we only had a listener email into the show last week about the guilt and shame they felt after a, a diagnosis and that their body had let them down. Um, and, you know, it is all too common that people feel it's something that they have done, but they are some of the tools you mentioned that can help you to, to process that and move on. You have created a brand now, The Wellness Nurse, um, and you help people through your Instagram and through the space. Tell us a little bit about your work now. So The Wellness Nurse started off, I really wanted to help people be more consistent with their self-care and try and remove some of the guilt that comes with it. So I created The Wellness Nurse in the space for women, essentially, who are struggling, they're feeling exhausted, they really want to prioritise their self-care, but they don't really know where to start. And I use all of my tools and my education combined to help them with that. Amazing. Um, and I've, I've, I've seen your videos on Instagram. I've seen you doing pull-ups in a gym. You've gone beyond <laughs> chess, that's for sure. Yeah. But, you you know, you really practice what you, you preach and you, you can really see that, um, you know, with the beautiful advice you give and the beautiful life that you live. People can find out more at The Wellness Nurse, I-R-E on Instagram. Robin Taft, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Alive and Kicking. On News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, lots of you got in touch with me after my interview with Lorraine Keane about the menopause. And look, the email address is always open, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And lots of you were asking about food and how that can support women during perimenopause and beyond. Rachel Graham is a nutritional therapist and when perimenopause symptoms began for her in her early 40s, she found herself relying on her kitchen even more. She has poured all of her knowledge into her book, The Menopause Kitchen, Transform Your Menopause with Great Nutrition. And she joins me in studio now. Rachel, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Claire. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get into the book, tell me a little bit about your work in clinic. Sure. So I run an online women's health clinic and I um, work predominantly in women's health. So that covers things like um, digestive health, cardiovascular health, hormone health. So those would be the three main areas with um, a real slant or an emphasis on menopause. And you had your own experience of menopause and I, I do want to get to that, but there was something that I read in the book that really stood out to me. You said many of my midlife clients arrive at clinic feeling unhealthy, bloated and tired. Mm. And yet they're not connecting the dots mm. between how they're living their life and what sort of food they're eating and how they actually feel. Exactly. And I think that many of them were experiencing the same symptoms that I experienced myself, yet they didn't have a clue how to properly nourish themselves in order to be able to effectively manage those symptoms and, and, you know, to be able to just feel better. And, you know, a lot of them are kind of losing confidence at this stage in their lives as well. Very, very stressed. I think stress is one of the key driving factors behind a lot of menopause symptoms because we are like that generation of women that are, you know, we've had children later in life. So we still have younger kids at home. We may be looking after elderly parents now, holding down a job. There's just so many factors going on. So we're essentially really the last on our list. So it was a case of just trying to prioritise your own self-care and, you know, establish some of those routines that may have been completely absent from your life. And I was having a conversation with Catherine O'Keefe, who's a menopause yeah. expert, and we were talking about how midlife and menopause happening at the same time it can be almost inconvenient because it's very hard to know whether 
you're just at the end of your tether and a bit fed up with life yeah. or it is your your hormones. Yeah. It's very hard to know because your relationships are possibly 20 years in. You've yeah. been a parent for a very long time. As yes. you said, there's a lot of stressors. Yeah. Your career, you've been kind of striving for a long yes. time. Yeah. So you can wonder, am I just fed up or is there something else going on here and are there actual changes I can make to change how I feel? Yeah, for sure. And I would agree with that. And I think this because we are, you know, we're we're working longer as well and um you know our careers are very important and we also have to contribute financially to the household. So I think work can be, um, you know, a big stressor and just women are not taking enough time out for themselves. So that's what I see more and more. So I say, look, we can't remove the stressors. We just have to try and offset them as much as possible. So trying to incorporate more stress busting into your day, and that can just simply be five or 10 minutes at a time, whether it's breathing or meditation or even taking a nap if you can, if you're at home going for a walk, all of these kind of things are really, really important and really key. And actually, I think have more of an impact on your overall health and well-being than you would maybe give it credit for. And Catherine herself will say, you know, we can go through choppy seas and the menopause can be a very choppy sea, but all we can do is fortify the boat to get through it. And calmer seas are on the other side. And I really love that analogy. And I also think women carry, and I know this is going to sound stereotypical, um, and it's not the same in, in every house, in every relationship, but women carry a lot of emotional load. They're the ones emailing the school. They're often the first ones to get the call from the school. They're buying the birthday cards and booking this and booking that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really thinking about everybody else ahead of themselves. So I think asking for help. Yeah. You know, I, there, there are other people that will buy a birthday card exactly. and, you know, your partner will book the trampoline place for the birthday party if you ask them yeah. to, you know. So I, I think sometimes we need to really eke out delegate. time for ourselves yeah. and delegate. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I say that we are, as women, professional plate spinners. We're constantly spinning those plates and, you know, sometimes we're going to let those plates drop as well and smash. So, you know, my kind of answer to that is to try and open yourself like a wellness account. So think of it as like personal banking where you're making daily deposits in the form of really good nutrition, exercise, relaxation, optimizing your sleep, just placing a focus on the basics, on the foundational aspects of health. And, you know, knowing that there's going to be some of those withdrawals. I'm sorry if this sounds a bit corny, but really when you think of it like that, it's kind of like your health is like money, like it's a transactional thing that you, um, you know, you're likely going to have some late nights, maybe eat too much sugar, you know, whatever it is, you're going to, just going to be tired, not enough sleep. But if you have um, enough reserves, then you're going to be able to create that balance. So it's not about being perfect all of the time because we know that that's just unachievable. So again, not setting yourself up for this kind of perfect, perfect life or perfection. It's just about just every day, just keeping in mind that your health and well-being is paramount, you know, and similar to what they say about putting your mask on, first of all, in in case of, you know, we drop in, in altitude if you're on a flight and um, because you can't help others if you're not feeling your best. Yeah, and you can't keep making withdrawals without putting in the odd deposit. And I think that's a really clever way of putting it. So tell me about your own experience of of menopause. Well, um, it was kind of early 40s, 43, 44, and I didn't actually realise that I was experiencing perimenopausal symptoms. Um, I was experiencing a lot of what seemed like unrelated symptoms at the time. And I just, again, like every other woman I come across at this life stage, didn't connect the dots, didn't realise um, again, I suppose there's that thought process of I'm too young for this. This is something that happens in your 50s. 
Um, but it also happened to coincide with the death of my mother, the sudden death of my mother. And that really fast tracked a lot of my symptoms for me. I found myself just having to uh, try and, you know, create a whole new space for myself and really reassess where I was in my life. And that actually led me to, I suppose, what I've been on for the last kind of eight to 10 years, which is this kind of path of of kind of reinvention, of growth, of um, upskilling. I went back to college later in life. Um, I trained to be a nutritional therapist. I also did uh, clinical hours. I did um, medicinal chefing. I did all of this stuff. Um, and it was all thanks to, I think, just kind of readdressing where I was at my life point and reassessing, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think that was, I think it, it takes a big, often tragic life event for you to maybe kind of pivot and change paths because you can find yourself just thinking, well, it's easier just to keep going, even if you're feeling stressed or unfulfilled. But uh, you know, it does definitely take a bit of courage, I think. But, and this is the point that I wanted to make about a really good diet is that, it can en enable that growth mindset, that kind of anything is possible mindset, because when you're effectively nourished, then you are just feeling so much better in yourself that you're able to make those big decisions and take those big leaps of faith. So, yeah, and it's your foundation, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. those pillars that hold you up to yeah. allow you to do these other things. And here's another sweeping generalization about women, but I think there are so many women who undernourish themselves because weight is their number one yeah. key factor and losing weight. Um, so to eat properly and nourish yourself, which is always my favourite word. Yes. I think people underestimate how that actually feels and the energy you can have and the mood you can be in when you're eating correctly. Yeah, because you're feeding your brain. And you're giving your brain exactly what it needs, the kind of building blocks, those essential nutrients that it requires in order to be able to function optimally, you know, to give you that kind of cognitive function, that mental clarity, focus, all of the things that we really struggle with at this life stage. So, yeah, nourishment is key. And this is why I wrote the book, because I really wanted women to know that it wasn't about deprivation. It wasn't about, you know, um, just not being excited or feeling uh, satisfied with what you were eating and always, you know, depriving yourself. I think that's a terrible way to live. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about this beautiful book then. Um, the Menopause Kitchen, Transform Your Menopause with Great Nutrition. And what I have heard sort of anecdotally is, you know, what sort of evidence do we have around, you know, healing the menopause through eating? But it really comes back to what you're saying. It's getting that foundation in place or even as Catherine refers to it, fortifying your ship yes. so that you can get through all these changes in life, yeah. be they life events like your mom, yeah. be they hormonal shifts yeah. like the menopause. But there are some aspects of our nutrition where it will make a difference. Talk to us about the MENO8 that you list through the book. Yeah, so I really identified eight key nutrients that I knew that women needed to optimise uh, in their diet in order to um, reduce their risk factors predominantly for those chronic health conditions that are associated with this life stage. So that is, um, you've got cardiovascular disease, so we're at five times greater risk of cardiovascular disease and um, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's and dementia. So that was like my starting point. So I was looking 
looking at foods that were going to help to reduce those risk factors. And so what I was wanted to do was really give optimised doses, not just recommended daily amounts, which would be considered the adequate amount. So the MENO8 that I identified were phytoestrogens, which are those plant compounds that mimic the oestrogen that we naturally synthesise or make ourselves. Then there's fibre. So we need to really up our fibre. Many of us are just really under consuming fibre and um, and that's really ac- across all uh, genres. Then uh, calcium and magnesium for our bones, protein, antioxidants, which would generally be all of the brightly coloured fruits, fruits and vegetables and vitamin rich, mineral rich foods. And uh, then brassicas, which would be the kind of umbrella term for um, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, those kind of vegetables. And then fermented foods, which is probiotics. So those would be the kind of core um, of the nutrients that I recommend to pretty much all of my clients that they optimise their intake of those in order to see and feel the benefits and feel the rest. And you've lots of beautiful recipes in the book, yeah. along with some explanations, some anecdotes from your clinic, some of the, you know, evidence that you have um, in your line of work. Yeah. But people will be listening and they'll go, oh, you know, I, I know all this stuff. I know I need to be eating more fibre, more veg. Yeah. To bring this into our life, what sort of life do we need to be living? I mean, when you're in your kitchen, mm. are you kind of looking at this like a science or is this something that people can just easily knit into the way they live? I think people think that to eat well takes a huge amount of effort and they'll be weighing things and checking things. It's not necessarily no, the case. Not not at all. Um, so first of all, it's there's no calories in the book. OK, so that it's not calorie focused. And I think I wanted to do that, especially for women, because we've been transfixed by calories. So um, because when you are optimizing your diet with fiber rich foods and all of the foods I've just mentioned would be naturally higher in fiber, then the calories kind of take care of themselves. So that's the first good thing. Secondly, there's no weighing and measuring. Um, it's really about the um, the 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 concentration of those key nutrients. And yes, some recipes would be more detailed than others. They'd have more uh, ingredients, but you can kind of pick and choose from the recipes is what I would say. And some are more suited for kind of family gatherings. So general life, it's not about, okay, this is my food and I'm going to sit over here and eat it all on my own. This is about inclusivity, you know. So um, I have women telling me that the ripple effect of them cooking from my book is that their husbands are losing weight. They're, you know, they're getting, you know, they're feeling better. Their kids are eating more veg, you know. So there's a really nice ripple effect in the family. So I'm and and the majority of my my clients are women, you know, I run a women's health clinic. So I'm very aware of that that they're cooking not just for themselves, they're cooking for a family. So yes, I've made it as accessible as possible. And you can also adapt the recipes, which is what I will say. You can adapt the recipes so that if you're eating more of a certain thing, maybe more non-starchy veg or green veg or Mediterranean veg, you can then add in some maybe pasta and rice for your kids to that. So you're not cooking two dinners. And I always say we spoke about how much giving we're all doing, whether it's to work, whether it's to family, it's go, go, go. To make cooking be your time, that it's something positive, something that you're giving back to yourself, you're nourishing yourself and you're taking time for yourself. It can actually be really enjoyable to get into the kitchen, start stirring up a pot and serving it out. I mean, look, the kids might turn their nose up at what you're making unless it's in a chicken nugget kind of formation. But ultimately, when you all just keep sitting down and and eating this way, yeah. 
like it's a it's a wholesome giving back thing. It's not something that's going to drain you and we should look at it more in a positive light. Yeah, and I think you can also create meal times as well that maybe didn't exist previous to this. Um, you can also involve your kids um, in the whole meal prep aspect, you know, especially if you start with the certain recipes like the almond butter brownies, for example, or something that you know is going to kind of hook them in. So, yes, you can create this quality time with other members of the household, for sure. Um, you dedicated this book to all the women taking action in the kitchen to future proof their health. And I was talking to somebody about brain health recently and he said to me, what we do in our 40s to 60s determines how we're going to be in our 60s to 80s. And it's quite an arresting Fact, but it doesn't have to scare us. No, just focus on nourishing yourself, not punishing yourself. Yeah. So feeding your brain, as I was saying earlier, you know, so you need those quality fats. As women, we have um, been fat has been demonised. We have completely cut it out of our lives. You know, the amount of women that I see coming into clinic that are, you know, eating zero fat, low fat, no fat, when in fact that's exactly what they need to be eating in order to nourish your brain. So omega-3s are the essential fats that we have to get from dietary sources. We cannot synthesize those ourselves. So if you're not getting those from dietary sources from, let's say, oily fish um, or flaxseed or chia seed or walnuts, those type of of, um, plant-based sources, then you should be supplementing. So it's really important that you realize that you can, what you're adding into your diet and focusing on that is much more enjoyable way of future-proofing your long-term health as opposed to just agonising over potentially what you might, you know, be rec- I might have recommended to you to remove. Can I ask about sugar? And, you know, I say it with trepidation because, as we've said, we don't want this to be about restricting. Mm. But I do remember hearing Davina McCall, who's become a real advocate yes. and expert on menopause, talking about what she learned about sugar mm. in the menopause. And I kind of feel like Davina McCall has never looked better. So I'm like, what's she doing? So yeah. what what happens to us and sugar through the perimenopause and menopause years? So when we continue to eat a lot of sugar or foods that convert quickly to sugar, which would be refined carbohydrates or white car- white foods, as I think of them, like white rice, white pasta, white bread. Those are all foods that convert really quickly to sugar. So they will give us those blood sugar spikes or insulin is released. And when you get repeated insulin re- releases or, or peaks, then that will have a knock-on effect on your overall hormone balancing. So women who are experiencing a lot of those physical symptoms of menopause, which would be like the hot flushes and night sweats, um, which are the kind of symptom that we think of initially when we think of menopause, um, that can be very easily addressed with a low sugar diet, which would be called the low GI diet or the low glycemic index, which basically means that GI means that um, it's the effect that carbohydrates have on your blood sugar. So if you are limiting your refined carbohydrates or ideally removing them and then swapping them out for the whole grain, whole food varieties or nature's carbs, as I think of them, which would be brown rice, um, brown pasta, quinoa, Uh, sweet potatoes, those kind of nature's carbs. Um, They're really, really good for balancing your blood sugar. So you don't get those those consistent spikes. So to come back to, I suppose, to answer your question directly, I know that was a bit of a roundabout way. um, The the ideal thing to do is just swapping those out. You're increasing your fibre. You're getting that all day kind of energy, which will help to keep your blood sugars balanced, which will ultimately end up in you not craving sugar. So it's a very freeing experience and also you'll effectively manage your 
post-menopause symptoms, those physical symptoms. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't buy a bar of chocolate and enjoy it with your cup of tea. You can't have your yeah. piece of birthday cake yeah. when you're at a party. That just means you have an awareness about exactly. what you're eating and yeah. how it impacts on your body. Yeah, well, 85% dark chocolate is actually really beneficial for you. And it's one of my recommendations in the antioxidant list. So just uh, enjoy your dark chocolate. Yes, and I like the sound of those brownies. Well, the book is yeah. called The Menopause Kitchen, Transform Your Menopause with Great Nutrition. Rachel Graham, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to all my guests, to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.